This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning at verse 3. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. While you're turning there, I do want to encourage you to return tonight, invite you to return tonight as we uh, spend some time praying together and singing as well as uh, studying God's Word. We're looking at Jeremiah chapter 32 tonight where the Lord commands Jeremiah to engage in what at best could be called a dubious, a dubious uh, real estate transaction. So I hope you return tonight for that time of uh, prayer and fellowship and the study of God's Word. This morning, we are looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Hear the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And as we study it this morning, uh, we pray for the light of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that in the the study of your word, that we would uh, worship you even in thinking your thoughts after you hear, that our hearts would be raised in praise and adoration to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That outburst on Peter's part should tell you right away that Peter is not about to engage in some creaky, dry-as-dust theological disquisition. Rather, Peter is going to tell us here about some truths that are so magnificent, that are so powerful, that are so joyful, that as he thinks about them and begins to write about them, he can't help but just praise God for these things right off the bat. Praise God for who He is and for what He's done. And I hope that as we study these words here in verse 3, and Lord willing in subsequent weeks, the verses that follow, that uh, we too would be moved to worship God, to praise God as we think about the things that Peter describes here. Because after all, any theology that does not stir you to thanksgiving and stir you to the worship of God is bad theology. Because you'll notice with Peter, as we've seen with Paul and his letters, he, he may write about what we consider some of the heaviest theological matters, but he tends either to begin it or more so to end it in doxology, in praise, in the worship of God. Good theology leads us to thanksgiving and to the worship of God, and we see this here. Now, Peter began this letter back in the first couple of verses by reminding us of who we are that we are the new covenant people of God, exiles in this world, yes, 
but chosen by the Father to be his own, redeemed by the blood of Christ, made holy by the Holy Spirit. That's who we are. And now Peter begins to talk more about what God has done for us in these verses that follow. And as he does so, he's excited. We've seen that, one, because of this outburst of praise with which he begins. But you also see his excitement in this. Verse 3 through verse 9 is one sentence in Greek. It's as if he got on a roll and he just kept writing and he just couldn't stop. It really is in a way reminiscent of Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul does much the same thing, where he uh, writes a very long sentence, just phrase after phrase, clause after clause, describing what God has done for us in Christ by his Holy Spirit. Now, he is excited, and he does go on and on, but he's not rambling. What Peter writes here is, is, is densely packed. Every word, every phrase is loaded with content. And that uh, led to my struggle this past week, getting ready for today. It was the week of the incredible shrinking text. I started out maybe thinking about covering three through nine, and there was no way. And then I thought, well, maybe three through five, which is rather reasonable, but in studying it, there just seemed to be so much here that it finally got shrunk down to just verse 5. I even thought of covering verse 5 one phrase at a time, each its own servant uh, sermon. rather. But then I remembered Barbara, and I thought, no, I'm not going to do that to her. So uh, verse 5, it is. Barbara likes in-depth, but she also likes to move along. So, But we won't cover the whole uh, epistle of Peter uh, here one verse at a time. We will be moving on. But these first few verses are so full uh, that it really is worth our time to slow down and, and look a little bit in more depth at what's there. Well, here in verse 3, Peter talks to us about what God the Father has done for us in God the Son. And as we look at this verse, we can break it down to find a motive, an action, a result, and then finally, uh, the means. Well, let's look at those. First of all, then the motive. Uh, we see that in the very first part of the verse after that doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we said, he begins with praise. And then he says, according to his great mercy. The motive in our salvation is, as Peter describes it here, the great Mercy of God. It's that mercy, uh, that compassion, his taking pity on us in our fallen and sinful condition that moved him, that motivated him to bring about our salvation. Now, that in and of itself is not a, an unfamiliar idea. In, pa- in fact, uh, it really stands behind what is arguably the most well-known verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16 which says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Again, the motive there, God's love, here, uh, similar to it, uh, Peter says, God's mercy, his compassion. Now, when we think of Jesus in his ministry, we think of his compassion. In fact, uh, frequently in the scriptures, we'll read how Jesus would see a crowd of people, and unlike his disciples at times, Jesus didn't see them as a nuisance, didn't see them as an obstacle, uh, but rather, as Jesus looked at people, the scriptures say he would 
feel compassion for them. Sometimes describing them in his sight as, as being like sheep without a shepherd. He would feel compassion for them and he would heal them or uh, he would feed them. In the case of the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd is there and it says Jesus looked on them with compassion. He healed many of their sick and then as they were getting hungry, uh, he, he fed them and of course used his disciples in that process in the feeding, the miraculous feeding of such a great crowd with so little. But Peter is not talking here about the mercy so much of Christ, compassion of Christ, as the compassion of God the Father. And that is a concept that actually goes back into the Old Testament. That may surprise you, because sometimes people tend to think, well, in the Old Testament you have a harsh and condemning and judgmental God, and in the New Testament you have a compassionate God. Well, of course, that's a, a foolish dichotomy, a foolish uh, distinction. Of course, it's just the one God, and he is not changing. Uh, now, yes, God shows his, his wrath and his judgment in the Old Testament, but uh, as I've said before, the, the most fierce and terrifying demonstration of the wrath of God occurs not in the Old Testament, but in the New. When God judged his own son in the place of sinners in the cross, that's the place of the ultimate display of the judgment of God on sin recorded in Scripture. Certainly, God in the Old Testament was a God of, of judgment, but he also displays his compassion. In fact, I want to, I want to refer you back to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. Moses, in the, in the, in the previous chapter, uh, has asked God to show him his glory. Have you ever prayed that? I think that's one of the more overlooked prayer requests in the Bible. In chapter 33, verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And the Lord says to him, Well, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That verse that Paul quotes in, in Romans 9, arguing for God's right to save whom he will or pass by whom he will. But the Lord says, You can't see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Then the Lord puts him, verse 22, in the cleft of a rock and covers him there with his hand, as the hymn says, until I have passed by, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And that's exactly what happens. In chapter 34, verse 5, the Lord descends in a cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means he's declaring who he is. His identity, his character, his nature. And this is what he says, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The Lord declares his character one of the first things that he says, as he's explaining himself, as he's describing his being, as he's proclaiming his name, the Lord, the first words out of his mouth about himself are a God merciful and gracious. Now, we want to be full and complete in our theology. 
when we recognize that God is gracious and God is merciful, without neglecting his wrath. His mercy does not come at the expense of his wrath. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 7, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And what is the response? Well, it's very much that of Peter. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. You see, as God reveals himself, worship is the response. God revealed himself as a God merciful and gracious. And so Peter here says it was according to that great mercy of God that causes Peter to worship him, to bless him, to praise him, that he is moved to salvation. The motive here was the mercy, the compassion of God. But then it goes on, moved by that motivation, to describe an action in verse 3. He has caused us to be born again. Now, there is a great deal in in that expression. Uh, And really, you can look at it in two parts. He has caused us to be. uh, One is the action of God. It was God's work that brought about our salvation. Now, Peter's already referred to that back in verse 2 when he says that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God for sanctification by the Spirit, for obedience to Christ, and sprinkling by his blood. Remember, we said that there not only is each member of the Trinity named, but a particular role that each member of the Trinity has in your salvation is, is briefly mentioned. It's a, it's a powerful verse, a helpful verse. Uh, but as Peter points out there, that salvation begins with the Lord. It is his action. Uh, it can be summarized no more compactly than Jonah. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, after uh, he prays in the, in the belly of the great fish, he, he summarizes by saying, salvation is of the Lord. God caused us to be born again. When we talk about being born again, which is the second part of this this expression, uh, it is a recognition of the truth of our spiritual death. Uh, Paul puts it that way in Ephesians 2 and verse 1 when he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, a condition that came about because of the fall. Genesis chapter 2, the Lord says, uh, If you eat of the fruit of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that I've prohibited you to eat, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They say, well, they didn't die. They were still there. Well, they did die a very real death, spiritually speaking. And if physically, they eventually did die. God preserved them in his mercy and uh, immediately uh, to them, even in, their, uh, in the pronouncement of uh, the curse that would come upon them. He, he, he mentions the, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a somewhat obscure way the coming Savior, you know, that seed of the woman who would crush the head of the seed of the, of the serpent. His grace comes into play very early on. Nevertheless, they were profoundly affected by their fall. And we, uh, their children, who share in the guilt of their sin, who share in their fallen nature, also are dead in our transgressions and sins, as Paul says. That's why he says that. That's our default nature as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And so in that condition, we simply are not able to respond to the Lord, to respond to the gospel, to respond to Jesus. 
Uh, Jesus is quite clear about that in John chapter 6. You know, we would like to think that we could, but Jesus says it's otherwise. In John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So no one can come to me unless something happens, unless the Father draws him. The Father has to act first to draw that person to believe in Christ. And, And Jesus says it again in verse 65, John 6, verse 65. That's why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So from those two verses, we learn a very important truth. Salvation begins with an action of God, not with an action on our part. Well, yeah, the Father had to send the Son so I could believe in him. Well, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus is assuming the presence of the Son, assuming the Son inviting people to himself, as he did, But he says no one can respond unless the Father acts first to draw that person to himself or to grant belief, to grant to come to Christ first. And then, and only then, is a person able to believe in the Lord Jesus as his Savior. Well, what happens? Well, the Holy Spirit goes to that person and he makes them alive. He gives them a new birth. As if just as the person was born the first time, they have to be born again spiritually from death to life in order to believe. You'll recall Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about this very thing. Uh, You must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus says, well, how, how can a man enter into his mother's womb and be born a second time? Hard to know if he's just being obtuse or if he's just being difficult, you know, just just kind of being a devil's advocate there. Uh, he was he was a smart man, uh, but he asks it that way. And uh, but Jesus is saying that to believe we have to experience a second birth. Well, that's exactly what Peter's talking about here. The Father has taken an action. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, and He's given us a new heart, a living heart, caused us to be born again. So that once where there was once spiritual death, there's now spiritual life and perception, and responsiveness to the gospel. Now, that doesn't rule out human responsibility when we hear the gospel, the uh, responsibility that we have to repent of our sins and to believe in Christ. And we are accountable if we don't. Remember in Romans 9, where Paul is talking about God's sovereignty and choosing whom he will save, Paul anticipates one of the objections will be, well, then how can God hold him accountable? You know, who can resist God's will? If he's not chosen, how can God hold him accountable for not believing? Paul anticipates that objection. But the fact is we are accountable before God because we have an obligation to repent of our sins and to believe in God's provision for our salvation in Christ. And we do respond, truly. When you hear the gospel, when you believed in Christ, it was an action you took, but... You were able to do that only because God had first caused you to be born again. Some would say you believe and then you're born again. I would say you cannot believe until you are born again. How can you? You're dead in your sins. But God causes you to be born again. And then you're able to see yourself for who you are. You're able to see God for who he is. able to see Jesus for who he is. And to turn to him in faith 
and be saved. So we see the motive here in salvation is God's great mercy toward us, his compassion toward us in our fallen and lost condition. The action he took, he causes us to be born again so that we can believe in the Son whom he has sent for us to be our Savior. But then we have a result. What is the result of all of this? He says we call, he caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. That's a curious way to put it. What's living about it? Well, first of all, let's think about what the opposite of that might be, and that's a dead hope. What is a dead hope? Well, a dead hope would be hope that's no hope. Hope that doesn't lead anywhere. And um, there, there are all kinds of people who are exercising a dead hope. Uh, we think of the materialist, uh, the person who says uh, that this world is all there is. There is nothing uh, to the idea of the supernatural. Uh, all that exists is what we can see and hear and uh, detect empirically with instruments or with our own senses, and there's nothing else. Such a person has no hope, and any hope that they may have uh, for joy, for happiness, for peace is illusory. There's no grounds for it. Their feet are planted firmly in midair. There's no reason to hope, because there's nothing there. there. There's only us, this cosmic, meaningless accident that we happen to be, that will be here for a while, a few billion years maybe, and then pass away into the uh, emptiness and meaninglessness of space and rocks and chemical reactions. There's no hope there. Such people have no basis for hope, and if they're honest, there is nothing left for them but despair. Uh, other areas where there would be dead hope uh, are, are people who just sort of live with an unthinking, naive optimism. Maybe they're materialists, maybe practical materialists, uh, but they just live life. And they sort of have this naive optimism about life, that everything's going to be okay. Uh, but at press, they really have no reason. Um, you think in that capacity of uh, Charles Dickens, David Copperfield, you, you remember Mr. Micawber, uh the man who was out of work. And uh, Copperfield, David Copperfield was worried about him. And he said, not to worry, Mr. Copperfield, something will turn up. Something will turn up. Well, some people are, are, are live their lives that way. There's just sort of a vague optimism. Well, you know, I'll deal with death when it comes and, you know, I'll probably wind up in heaven. It'll be OK. Uh, without any real basis for that kind of optimism. There's also the dead hope of the nominal Christian uh, a person who is in church, a person who may participate in the activities of the church, and yet a person who is a nominal Christian, that is Christian in name only. Their hearts really are somewhere else. Uh, for them, uh, church is an activity. Re uh, Christianity is a religion. Uh, it may have cultural or social value to them in some way or another, but they really don't see the need to go overboard with it. Uh, you don't want to... Uh, to, to, to give too much credence to these things about uh, men being raised from the dead and these miracle stories and all of that. Uh, the world is full of nominal Christians. Our, our nation, our state is full of people who are Christians, frankly, in name only, who have not been born again by the Spirit, who are not living as followers of Jesus Christ, not just on Sunday, but on Monday as well. They have no basis for hope. They are not in Christ. Their religion will not save them. Their knowledge that they may gain in church only serves to further condemn them. 
on that day when they stand before the Lord, when he holds them accountable for those truths that they heard from the Sunday school lectern and from the pulpit week after week after week. Not a dead hope, but a living hope. A hope that is real. A hope that is more than just naive optimism. A hope, rather, that is rooted in what God has done for us in Christ. The Christian's hope of glory is solid because it's based not on you, not on what you have done, not on where you have belonged as, as, a, as, a, as a Christian, to what church, but rather on the work of Christ. Therefore, it is a living hope. It has a basis in history, and it has a basis in the mercy and in the grace of God and in the promises of God. And it's a living hope because there is life in it. We are alive. We are born again in Christ. Uh, the, the hope is living because we are living now, spiritually, finally, and for real. So it's viable for this life. It gives us confidence in the goodness of God, even when times are hard here in this life. And it's viable for the life to come, that we are confident that we will be with the Lord because of what he has done for us in Christ. That is a living hope that we have in Christ, as opposed to other forms that it would be a dead hope. But then that does lead us to the last thing, the means. How do we have this living hope? How has the mercy of God been expressed? Why is he able to cause us to be born again? Well, it comes to the means, which Peter mentions last, and that is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the means by which we have all of these things. You see, the resurrection of Christ guarantees our eternal life, our resurrection, as Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, a text we often hear at Easter time. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, then your your faith is in vain. Our preaching is is in vain. There's nothing to it. You know, nothing to see here. Move along. But if Christ is raised, then, then we are alive in him. We have been raised to new life in him, and he is the first fruits guaranteeing that we will live upon our death and that our bodies will be raised up, imperishable, incorruptible at his return. So Christ, his resurrection, guarantees our eternal life then, as well as now. But the resurrection of Christ also empowers our Christian life now. Now, we tend not to think about it that way, but it's true. And really, the passage here is Romans 6, where Paul talks about how we died with Christ and have been raised to new life in him. And as he goes on, therefore, we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, we don't offer ourselves, our minds, our bodies, our tongues over to sin, to serve sin, but to God to serve righteousness. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead certainly gives us hope for the future because it gives us power for the Christian life now. That's the difference between Christianity and moralism. Moralism is just hunker down and be good. Christianity is you have been profoundly transformed in your union to Christ in both his death, you died with him, and in his resurrection, you have been raised to a new life in him. It's not just act a certain way, it's act like who you are now in Christ Jesus. You see, that's the... That's the the, the, the motive, the Father's mercy, the action he took causing us to be born again, the result of that, our living hope, all based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Physically, literally, in time and space history, because if it didn't happen, then none of the rest of this is valid at all. 
But because he is raised, then we do have this living hope. Well, let me ask you uh, to consider a couple of responses to what Peter writes here. First is to believe, to believe in this risen Savior who offers himself to you as the satisfaction for your sins. Because you see, your sins must be dealt with. They either were dealt with on the cross 2,000 years ago, and that applied to you through your faith in Jesus, or they will be dealt with when you stand before the Father and are finally and ultimately and eternally condemned to hell as justice for your treason against God. So where will your sins be dealt with? At the cross or by you in hell? Dear friends, I urge you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. He offers himself to you. He offers you life. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you reconciliation with the Father through his death and through his resurrection. The second response, uh, I think, should be clear from Peter's own response, and that is worship. Dear friends, yes, these are truths to be known in our heads, but they are also truths to warm our hearts, to stir our hearts, to praise and worship of the living God because of his great mercy, because he has caused us to be born again, born again to a living hope through the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he sent, who went to the cross for us, and he was raised to life for us. Believe in him, but don't let these things just be dry truths that you know, answers to questions, answers you can give, but let them stir your heart with love for God, with thanksgiving and worship, so that as you read these things, as you think about these things, you would say with Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we do praise you. We do give thanks to you. We do bless you because of these things that you have done for us, things we could not do for ourselves, things you did not have to do for us, but you did. Father, we thank you. And we pray that you would increase and strengthen our faith. And Father, we pray that the contemplation of these things would very quickly lead us to adore and praise your name. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.